Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM. you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM and tonight we have an interview with the writer Brian Williams. Uh, hello Brian. Good evening Peter, you alright? Keeping well? Yeah, very well. Lovely to uh, to hear you and uh, we've also got with us Tony Macaluso, co-director of Chapel FM. Hello Tony. Hello Peter, hello Brian. Hi there. So uh, Tony's uh, read uh, one of Brian's uh, latest novels I'm in the middle of another one and um, Brian has been writing furiously since he retired from being deputy uh, or from acting head of Broadthorpe Junior School in Huddersfield which is where I first met you Brian many years ago do you remember that? that's right yeah many years ago actually time does fly I think it must be about 10 years now I've been retired so, yeah. And you really have been writing since then. I mean, were you always, even during the, your years as a teacher, were you were you writing then, or is it just since retirement? Um, I kind of put writing on a hold. I used to write a long time ago before I went into teaching. But once you start teaching, you get very busy, and um, my family came along. So I kind of put it on a back burner, but I think I did always write all the time. I just I wrote oral stories, because I used to tell, I always tell lots of stories to my kids at school, and when I did assemblies, I used to love telling stories. And some will be retelling your famous stories and fables. And quite often, I just make up my own stories to you know, make some point about the likelihood of it being a giant who's made a mess in the boys' toilets. It's probably not true. It's probably someone else. But, you know, I'd invent some kind of fabulistic tale and tell that story. So I've always been telling stories. And with three kids... You know, I, I knew what sort of things they liked when it came to bedtime. Sometimes we'd read. Other times I'd just tell them stories about things that I know that they would enjoy. So though I've not actually been sitting and writing while I was teaching, I was always telling stories. It's always been something that I've loved. I've been an addictive reader from about the age of 18. And I always thought, you know, I'd love to write something one day. And I, and I was always kept at it. I started at poetry first, but my poems are truly shocking. Yeah, I, don't, I think me and McGonagall would have gotten really well. I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> but, so then, yeah, I, so I started writing, and I, I really enjoy it. I find it very relaxing. So first of all, yeah, going back even further to when you were growing up, when you were a kid, were there were there books in the house? Was there reading? Well, this will seem a really bizarre thing to say, but um, absolutely not. We came. We were we were an immigrant family. We came over from Ireland in the start of the sixties, and. Um, very poor, I suppose, really. You know, struggled to get anywhere to live. And there was um, altogether nine of us trying to find a house. So in our house, I can know exactly what books we had. We had a set of Encyclopedia Britannicas, that are probably from about 1843. A Collins English Dictionary, which I think was written by Shakespeare. Were words that were very odd. And my brother had a copy of The Lord of the Rings. And that was it. They were the books we had in our house. My father, I don't think my father could read. So he, ne we never, he never read to us. My mother, who was a, actually a very intelligent woman in Ireland, she had a job as a personal assistant to the head of Woolies in Ireland. When she came to England, being Irish, no one would employ her. And so she, ended, she just worked as a cleaner. And 
she was, a, I mean, she was great for telling stories, not for reading stories, because, I mean, this, this could be a story in itself, really. But my mother didn't like reading, and we never really understood why, because she was a great talker, and she knew all sorts. She used to be able to recite poems that she learned at school, and she really loved literature, but we never saw her reading. And it was only when my father died, about 20-odd years ago, we realised that my mum only actually had one eye. We hadn't known this. She, she'd gone through her whole life with a glass with a glass eye and none, none of us knew we all thought she had a lazy eye which didn't she had a glass one and the one that we thought was lazy was the one doing all the work so i think she maybe just felt a bit too self-conscious to read and you know she when we found out we had to pretend we didn't know because she didn't want anyone to know and it created some really good surreal moments because i used to have to take her to the place to get her glass eye clean and i had to pretend i didn't know what we were doing so she'd hand me the, the, the um, appointment letter with her thumb covering over the details. And I had to phone in advance and say, when I come in, just pretend that I don't know what to Don't mention what I'm here for. And so there's this whole clandestine thing going on. So we just kept up with the great myth that we thought my mum had um, two eyes. When in actual fact, she only had one. I often wonder if that was a thing that stopped her reading because she did love stories and did love to tell a tale. And she was a great tale teller. But, um, How did you really find out about the eye? Well, it's, it's a bit bizarre too. So when my father died, we had to go through lots of equipment and we found a couple in a drawer because he had to get them replaced. And, um, and we weren't quite sure what even they were. But then in those days, if you had a passport, you had to actually put on it if there's some like, distinguishing weird feature and she put one eye. And that's how we found out. I mean, it's weird. I mean, no, we can never mention it to her. So what is, in terms of your, your reading... Um, what was the first book that you remember making an impression upon you? And how did you get hold of it if there weren't books around? The first book was absolutely, well, I know it's easy. That was A Wind in the Willows. Um, because we were, we were, Mrs. Dowling was reading it to me at school. Well, read to my school. And we got to the part where um, Hold fell into the road going boop, boop. And then it, um, where we lived, my dad was working in a mill. There was a wait weeks. So we had to go on holiday then. So we went away on holiday. Came back two weeks later, and Mrs. Down said, Reading, say, where do we get up to kids? I put my hand up, said, Ah, Mrs. Toad's in the road, saying, Oh no, we finished that book now. And so she stopped reading and she read something else. And it bugged me for years. So whatever happened to the Toad in that road after we poop poop? And then when I was doing my degree, I just walked past an old bookshop and I saw it in the window. I thought, yeah, I'm going to read that and find out whatever happened to that blooming Toad. And I read it, and that's and I've never put down a book since. I just got absolutely hooked. I mean, obviously, during my teenage years, I read bits and bobs and stuff. I used to be a great fan of Ray Bradbury, but I just picked at that. But we went, we, I can remember picking up that Wind of the Willow. I was reading it, and then something inside me just clicked, and I just haven't, I just can't stop reading. It's like an addiction. The worst things, I guess, to be addicted to, but I mean, I read and read and read. I think I've about 23 books this year that I've read, and I've got about five on the go at the moment. I drive people nuts, but I just like reading. It's bizarre, isn't it? So Wind in the Willows was the one that got me reading. And did you, at school, I mean, you, obviously you became a teacher, but it's, it, was there a teacher at school who encouraged you in other writing? Well, yeah, I guess there was a teacher, really. When I was at, um, I made a mistake of passing my 11 plus, which I never advise anyone not to do that, ended up at a very strange grammar school. But um, the English teacher, a guy called Mr Ensor, he used to love my writing. He used, to, he, used to, he used to encourage me to write. Whatever there was like, you know, to write stories in English. You know, I used to love that bit. And he used to always read my stories out to the class. 
you know, put, put up in the school magazine. And he said, you've got to keep writing. And he, he loved the stuff. I mean, I, I did cheat sometimes. And I just um, nicked some plot lines off Ray Bradbury and H.G. Wells. And even once the... Um, and it got lyrics from Rush's 2112. And you never noticed that. Well, you know, I was writing, and I love that feeling of when you hear when you hear something you've written coming from somewhere else. It's a, there's something about it's something magical about hearing your words coming out of someone else's mouth and seeing how other people respond to them. So, so Mr. Ensor would be the person who really encouraged me to write. As I said, then it just all fell down the bias. Life just took over, so never actually. Aaron writing. Although, as you said, I've got a book coming out, and when the book comes out, I am going to track him down. Because it wasn't much older than me, so I'm sure he's still alive, and I'm going to give him a copy and thank him. Right, did it did, did it occur to you to to try and be a writer? Did that something that occurred to you at all, or, or was it? Does that does that not occur to every romantic at about the age of nineteen? I had a vision of myself because eighteen, I ran away from home. I lived in Greece for a while, and I came back to go to university. And, yeah, and I had this vision of myself sitting, you know, on a balcony in Naxos with a Remington in front of me and a uh, bottle of Red Sina next to me. And just like, I've been a bit like Lawrence Durrell and just knocking out these wonderful books that would change the world. And that would have been a great thing. The reality was I got to Preston and um, there was lots of pubs and lots of football to play and lots of life to be had. And I thought, well, I can do it tomorrow, 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 and tomorrow, as they say. And so it just kind of stopped. But yeah, I would love to have been a writer. But now I'm older, I don't know why it's that important. It's, it, this is a really strange thing to say, this, given that I've just got a book coming out. But if you walk into a bookshop, there are a lot of books in this world, aren't there? And you do wonder, does the world actually need another book? And it's a strange thing. So I've always wanted to get published. And it's like, you know, at school, you want to have the slow dance at the end with the best-looking girl in the school, and then you do it. You think, well, what was all that about then? And you kind of think, well, you publish. You think, well, it's just one of these books will disappear into a bookshop somewhere and then probably end up in a remainder's bin. And I think, well, why do it? And I think the only thing that sort of keeps you hanging in there is, well, if just two people read it and enjoy it, well, then it's worthwhile. And I suppose when you're younger, you also have this thing about writing where you think you're sort of craving some sort of immortality, don't you? You, know, you think, you know, maybe people remember me like Hardy or Shakespeare. And maybe yeah, that's what you think, I'll live forever. But then as you get older, you're too busy staying alive to worry about being immortal. And I think, well, you know, if I want to live on, my kids there floating around. So that's, you know, that's my little mark, you know. I'm not that desperate to think that in two years' time anyone will know me or care about me. So, you know, I write and it'll be just to hear of know that someone has enjoyed it. That'll be fine. Well, I'm just impressed that you managed to kiss the uh, best girl in the best-looking girl in the disco. Yeah, and, and you yeah, know, I'm lying. It was worth it. It was worth it. <laughs> oh, I'm going to hand over to you. You've read uh, a recent novel of Brian's, so yeah, over to you. Yes, well, it's a book that I was I was calling Featherbed Moss, but I've now discovered it has a second name. Like <laughs> all good books or cats that has many names, which is Who Killed. Uh, John Cropper as well. And you were saying, Brian, just now about, you know, does the world need another book? You walk into a bookstore. And I have to say, when I came to the north of England, when I moved to Yorkshire, and I understood that, I was always interested in the idea of Luddites. And I understood that the Luddites were from generally this part of the north in 1820s, so 200 years ago. And having just finished uh, Who Killed John Cropper, Featherbed Moss, um, I have to say that the world definitely needs 
this book. There may be other books about the Luddites or the Wreckers, but I have to say, as somebody who's been soaking up this landscape and the Moors, and this book takes place in Marsden, so not too far from here, just a little bit, what is it, south southeast of us, it, uh, I, I, I swept through it in the last, the last two days or so and just found that it was one of the books that I feel like I've been missing since coming here, and it filled in an enormous gap in my sense of what it means to be living in this place. And so first choosing this topic of setting a book about 200 years ago in Marsden with three narrators, old Tom, young Tom, and the featherbed moss itself, the moors. And I guess was there, let's first go to that. What was the moment when, where did, what was the spark behind it? And then I want to hear a bit about the moors speaking themselves right after this. I suppose I live in Huddersfield. I live in the Cone Valley, which yeah. is where it all took, all took place. And um, it was something I knew nothing about when I arrived here, Luddites. I mean, people use the word Luddite in a derogatory term, don't they? Yeah. If someone doesn't want something, they, you know, they think change is a bad thing. So, oh, you're a Luddite. So I knew the word, but it never occurred to me where, it, where it ever even came from. And then when I arrived in Marsden, again, you know, like reading books, don't you? And I read stuff and around, I just got drawn into the whole story of the Luddite, and it was just fascinating. There's so, I mean, so much. I mean, it, I think the book comes out at about two hundred pages, but really, you could write loads of articles. And but I didn't want to write a history of the Luddites because there are histories of Luddites out there. But I didn't really think there was a book that had a narrative that ran through it that would. As a, you follow the narrative through, you would discover and learn about Luddites. Maybe it's the teacher in me, I don't know. So there's nothing, there's nothing in the book that you'll follow the story through, you know, because it, it's about someone, old Tom, who is hiding on the moors because he's certain he's going to be hung for murder because a body be found with his knife in it. And so he's a refugee on the moors. And it's all tied up with the Luddites. So the, you know, the story is you know, who actually did kill John Clark. Is it old Tom? And so you have to read the story to find out. And as you read the story, the clues are sprinkled throughout. But also, they, the, the, the thread of the, the narrative floats upon the story of the Luddites. And um, almost all the incidents that happened in the book actually happened in real life. Obviously, not to these people, because they weren't all real people. Some of them are fictional. But, you know... The, yeah, it, 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 it all happened. It's quite bizarre to think. I mean, the weird things I missed out, and I can remember reading somewhere when I was researching it, that at the time of the Luddites, there were more soldiers based in Huddersfield who were actually off fighting the Napoleonic Wars. But, you know, the government was so scared of what was going on. It was a yeah, time of real insurrection. Yeah, you know, just followed after the um, French Revolution. It was only 20 years before, so there's a real panic. And so it was just a fascinating moment in history. So I wanted to write this story set it against the backdrop of the Luddites, which I found was a great thing. And because it was a fiction, I could cheat. Uh, there's one incident that happens in the story. There's a fame, there's a, remember the bit about the fire, the mill that burns down, mm. and a lot of kids burn in that fire, the Atkinson's Mill. I've set that in the town of Luddites. That happened about 10 or 15 years after the Luddites finished. But it doesn't matter because the conditions that were around that enabled those children to work in such terrible conditions. And 
enable them to be killed so horrifically. It could have happened at the night times. So I didn't feel guilty moving it forward. And I brought it into the book because I thought it was another illustration of just how grim life was for the working person at that time. And there was a reason why the Luddites were cross. And there's a reason for what they did. And it wasn't just about not liking change. What they wanted, they actually wanted change, wanted things to improve. But what they didn't want was a change that was going to make their life, the life of their children and their families worse, which unfortunately is what the change did. I mean, the croppers who were very wealthy, they were replaced by machines and they went from being very wealthy to becoming very poor. And you know, from that, in our language, you now we have the phrase, to come a cropper. Mm. And people say it time and time again. But no one ever thinks, well, what does that actually mean to come a cropper? You know, when you, someone falls from high place to low place, that phrase pops out, but no one thinks what it means. You know? And that's something you know, to do with Luddites, these people who were people who were educated, who had good skilled jobs, you know, machines took their jobs away and they had nothing. They were thrown out of houses, they became poor, they were thrown onto the mercy of the parish. And it was a very traumatic time. I just found the whole thing interesting. But, you know, where I live, it's an environment that's absolutely stuffed with Luddite history and industrial history, early industrial history. So it just seeped into my bones. So that, that's why I wrote it. Well, and speaking of seeping into the bones, there's, there's, there's old Tom, who is a Luddite and uh, a wrecker, and then his son, young Tom, and then there's a third a third voice that we'll hear at the, at the end because I want you to read a, a passage that comes from that third voice. But at the same time, young Tom is, is discovering literature. He's being tutored by Master Lincoln, I think it is. So, and mm -hmm. they're reading, you know, Galen on, on early medicine and talking about Sophocles and reading Jonathan Swift, Gulliver's Travels and other things. And so there's this discovery of books at the same, at the same time that, that, uh, and of course, we not we won't find out where where this young Tom goes later in life. But that at the same time that, that the Luddites are fighting that battle, there's this this other generation and this description of just the joy of discovering literature and teaching. And so bringing that in in weaving that in with the Luddite story. When did, where did that come? How did how did that become the other element for you? Well, I had a, I had a great problem with that to tell the story. It was, I mean, I think it took about five or six writings to get it into shape. I liked it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I just went for this idea because it had been stole, told by three people. And um, if I was going to have it told by a child, that child had to, had to have access to certain things to make the story work. And so the obvious thing was to put it, put it through school and through books. And I also, you know, part of the point of that was people have this idea that, 200 years ago, people knew nothing. Mm. Well, of course, 200 years ago, people knew almost as much as they know now. They just didn't have the technology. So the, uh, the idea of this, his investigation of ideas, you know, it's part, I put that in really, you know, part of, in the, I needed it for the story, but also just to remind people, you know, these people in history weren't just dumb people with things happened to them. You know, they were intelligent people. You know, and there's a body of knowledge out there 200, 250 years ago, which was, you know, phenomenal. Yeah. Human beings for all our, you know, smartphones and Wi-Fi's and what bits and pieces and technology, intellectually, philosophically, you know, we probably know different than we were 3,000 years ago. Now, so that part of that point in the story is to highlight that, but for the story, it fits in that it gave the 
young Tom an opportunity to be involved with the characters that he needed to observe to piece together the bits and bits of the story and for the clues to sort of play out. So that's why I used young Tom. Mm. I used the education. And that father-son relationship is like so many other others in literature. It's just so, it's so rich. And so the third voice though is, is I mean, that's right when you dive in the very beginning, the, the first section of the novel is narrated by this, this third voice that comes back in. It's, I guess it's a, it's a, a first person plural in a way, right? It's a, it's a we, it's the voice of the, mm-hmm. the landscape itself of, of the Moors. And maybe let's just, do you want to, can you read that section that, that uh, we picked yeah, out? Well, yeah, well, yeah. The way that I structured the novel, as I say, it's told through three voices. Uh, I don't even notice when you read it, what they rotate through, it goes, mm. first you have, you have the Moors that speak, then you have old Tom, then you have young Tom, then you have the Moors, then you have old Tom and the young, and that cycles through in that, in that pattern all the way. So I use the Moors as a, as a way of filling in the things that I couldn't access through old Tom and young Tom. Because other things, to make the story make sense, people had to know other things. So it was how... Do I do it without bringing lots and lots of characters? Well, this area is surrounded by the Moors. You know, the Moors have been here forever. So I thought, well, I'll give the Moors a voice. What would they see? And I thought, well, I'm going to say the Moors run under every building and everywhere. Well, they see and hear everything. So the Moors became an impartial observer of the events. So, so that, that's why I gave them that voice. And the Moors never, ever make any value judgments. You know, they talk about some of the things that happen. But it's not for them to say what's right and wrong. The more you talk about what went on, what they saw. And the only valid judgment they make, really, is the surprise that men, women, just keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Well, Peter, yeah. I know you spent a lot of time walking the moors. So maybe before we go on to the next part of the interview, Brian, if you're willing to to, to hear, let us hear a bit of the voice of the moors. <laughs> when I read this particular passage, I read it several times and got up the next morning and read it again and thought, okay, I will... I will never again be walking in the moors without this being, this voice being in my head. Okay, well, um, as I said, I think this, this, this point where the moors are actually speaking is quite late on in the story. I'd say it's probably about two thirds the way through or three quarters of the way into yeah. the story. And it, it refers to something called the worm, which um, is spelled W-Y-R-M, and the worm's a legend that is in Huddersfield. And it's based around a place called Almondbury, because there's an Iron Age fort up there. And like old, most old buildings and bits of history, myths and fables grow up around them. And the myth and fable that grows up around Castle Hill was that there is a giant worm that lives underground, gets up and does nasty, nasty things to people. So, you know, people disappeared on the moors. Well, it was the worm. If bodies were found on the moors, well, then it was the worm. So that's where the worm came from. I brought the worm into my story too. So when I'm talking about the worm, when the moth, featherbed moss is talking about the worm, he's not talking about little wiggly woo at the bottom of the garden. He's talking of this mythical worm, okay? So here's a short bit of the book and you hear the voice of featherbed moss. And as I say, at the moment he's talking about the worm. The worm is a mystery whose shape, form and manner is dependent upon the teller of the story. 
that the unseen and the unknowable worm slimes putrid paths over the moor can be of no doubt. For how else to explain the vanished traveller? The bones of last year's ram which emerge from a stream or the swirling fogs and mists which surely must be evidence of its foul breath. The worm is the bringer of death on the moorside. We are dangerous places, and yet no one asks to where does the worm go in the days of summer? When bees drunkenly roll from flower to flower, lizards bask on rocks, and fat grouse gabble in the gorse, where then is this terrible worm? Summer's lovers who bed themselves on the sweated moonlit flowers have no thought of this beast that apparently writhes beneath them in the ground waiting to pounce. Where is the worm when the days are beautiful? The nighttime stars shimmer in the rising heat. The worm is a harbinger of the capitulation of the soul. It is the worm who strips the flesh, crushes the bones, buries the deeds and the bodies of those who dare to pit their wits against the moor. That is the worm. In my belly, there is no such parasite. The worm is a fiction conjured by the guilty minds of men and women. You're right, for a piece of music. Yes. At some point in this conversation, I think they talked about dancing with the girl at the disco. And I, listen, that, that wasn't a clue I put in on purpose, actually, but now it works quite well. Because the song I chose, it, you know, I love music. I play guitar. And I, I, that was one thing about my childhood. There was no books, but there was never a point in my childhood when there wasn't music playing. There was music in every single room in our house. You could walk from room to room and it, you'd hear a big band in the front room, mum singing in the kitchen. My brothers playing whatever we had at the time, the monkeys and the Beatles. So music has been a big thing in my life. I love music. I love great songs. This really is not a classic piece of music. I just love it. Well, that's all right. It's kind of a bit of guilty pleasure of life. And it was one of the classic disco songs. You hear a disco, you run on the floor, and then um, you find that person to dance. And hopefully it is the best-looking girl or the best-looking boy in the disco. And you have that moment when you're united by music and you just lose each other. And you just disappear into the melody, and it's a, it's a great feeling. What I particularly like about this song is if you ever hear the full version of it, the opening 20 seconds sounds nothing like the rest of the song. So I come to DJs, it comes on discos, and people have never heard, people didn't buy the single, they only heard it on the radio, and the radio has never played the introduction. But if you have the single, you hear this very classical guitar piece, and you think, oh, I know what it is, so you're always first on the dance floor, you know what's coming. And then it's when the song breaks in, everyone jumps up and dances, because everybody recognises it. It's a really clever little trick. Anyway, and it's a song, it comes from 19, I think it's 71. 72 must have been, it was my last year at junior school. And there's a line in it says, you led me away from home just to save from being alone. I remember at that time, being a love-struck little kid, I used to hold Angela O'Shea's hand or school bag, and I used to walk home out of my way. And I used to hate some holidays because I couldn't see her for all summer. So this song has lots of memories me from right way back then to hundreds of discos through my life to my wedding. You know, it was just great song. It's Maggie May by Rod Stewart and the Faces.
So you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. That was Monkey Mate by Rod Stewart from 1972 from Brian Williams Williams's last uh, year at junior school, um, uh, holding the hand of Angela O'Shea. Where is Angela now? Brian? Oh, I have no idea. Time it. Time passes. Time passes. They say probably. No, I did. probably doesn't remember it. My, I can sing. I remember all sorts of bizarre, weird things. And I talked to people. I didn't know what I'm talking about. So maybe she probably doesn't even remember me at all. You know, she think, I don't know. Well, she's been a mortal. I don't know who he is. words. I know, yeah. So it's funny to see that. But then again, actually, that's quite interesting to mention the question because when we get to talk about Lady Bird Summer, it's a book that deals with memory. And how our memories tell us things which aren't always what we think they are. You know, we can be tricked by our memories. And after I'd written this, you know, I read somewhere that on average, people just basically make up their memories every seven years. You think of something and they think about it again. By the time, like Chinese whispers, by the time you're thinking of your first day at school, it's probably a mixture of cider with rosy, Oliver Twist, and something else, Terminator. And in your head, you've convinced it all happened to you. So, you know, it's, it's happened to me now as well. I, I was holding the hand with Angela O'Shea. You know, it's like, you know, as if I, the way you described it, it, it was me. Anyway, let's, let's go back to junior school. Because um, I want to uh, just ask you before we talk about Lady Bird Summer, which is the second book we're going to be chatting about tonight, Brian's books. I uh, just want to talk about, yeah, Rawthorpe Junior School again. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, as somebody who didn't grow up with books, who didn't go with reading. Um, how important was it for you to kind of imbue children uh, in where you were with that kind of love of words that you had? And were you able to do that? Well, yeah, I did. I used to, I mean, Raw thought was a school, that's what they call it, a challenging school, or they say it's, you know, it's got a lot of, a school with quite a considerable amount of deprivation. And actually quite a lot of immigrant families, different, different set of, you know, different generation. Migrants, so I, I felt I had a lot in common with many of them, and what ultimately, you know, got me through and brought me, brought me the best, most pleasure in life, and helped me the most was books. And I used to constantly tell kids about, you know, the importance of reading, the importance of writing, because it is the most important thing. You know, every time we have a parents' evening, you know, parents will come in and say, you know, Fred doesn't get enough homework. What should they do? Read, give them a book, read them a story. All the things in the world are in books. All the films you watch on telly have been written by somebody. They're not true. You know, someone's made them up, someone's written them down. Or if they are true, someone's interpreted them. You know, words are everywhere. So if a kid told me I don't like reading, they don't like books, well, I didn't believe them. So you just haven't read the book yet you like. You will find a book that they like because there is a book for everybody. There's a story for everybody. People like stuff. It's just a question of encouraging them to read. And once you get reading, you, know, you pick things up because good stories have lots of information and tell you more and more things and they open your eyes to the world. So I used to constantly go on to the kids about how important it was. Well, like most schools, we used to have a system where you know, you'd have a best pupil of the week, you know, and then you'd come up on a Friday and they'd get a certificate and got prize and they around and they talk about the work. And they come up quite often when all the kids who'd won the awards were standing on the little stage behind us, I would say to the school, right, put your hand up if you love reading. And then without even turning around, I'd say to I bet you every person behind me's got the hand up on me. And 
nine times out of ten, I was right. The kids who were behind me, who were doing, who were achieving, who were doing it in school, were the readers. And, you know, kids who were facing the wrong way, spinning around with the finger at the nose, didn't want to read. And, you know, and they were the kids that were trying to read. So you've got to, somewhere there'll be a book out there about the kiddie nose, you can read that. Enjoy it. You know, and there's a book for everyone, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I kept banging away the importance of books and reading because it's, it's learning by osmosis. They don't know they're doing it. It's like earlier Tony was talking about reading Featherbed Moss, and it's a story. What you teach, you learn about something else, you learn about Luddites. And yeah, you, what, most stories you read, you're learning about something else. So, yeah, I, I see, yeah. So, I did flog it at school. I well, I have to cool. say, Rawthorpe, I thought, was a fascinating school, and it was a brilliant place. I had a, you know, for two years, so I was there. I learned so much from, you know, yourself, Brian, partly, but also from other teachers and from the mm. children. And I was just looking then for my gold pen, which you gave me when I left. Uh, <laughs> uh, there was a little presentation when I left Rawthorpe. Yes, after well, a couple of years. Well, what better could you have to write than the gold pen? A pen. And it's worked because you wrote, you're still keep writing your poems and your collection of poems that I got were absolutely brilliant. I love them. And I know you think it's a strange thing that this idea of keeping them out of the toilet. I think it's great little reads, yeah. And they, yeah, I just think it's... Yeah, well, you said by the toilet and not in the toilet. I'm quite in the toilet. And, yeah, and I always make sure there's a good supply of toilet rolls so they never have to double up. It's a still a completely full book, nothing taken out. It's all in one place. Actually, it's not, actually, I've got to say, it's not by the toilet anymore. It's in bookcase. I've had to move it because my um, new partner thinks it's a strange habit to keep books in the toilet. In the toilet. Let's move on from toilets and poetry to, <laughs> yes, to your, the second book we're going to be talking about. And I, I've read some of this, not all of it, because I, and I made the feeble excuse that um, I prefer to read paper rather than on screens. But it's called Lady Bird Summer, but I was definitely gripped from the outset. It seems, as you say, very much about memory, very much about youth. There's lots of, for me, there was lots of kind of, yeah, summer sun and, yeah, sort of aroma of, of sweat and grass in there. Not grass as in stuff you smoke, but in the stuff you lie on. Uh, in the in the sun by the sea, and uh, so and some sand in your in your sandwiches, and it's got a real really lovely feel of of, of that kind of time of your life where you're just setting out and discovering new stuff. So, um, tell us a little about the book, and then I'm going to ask you to read um, the first section of it, if you would, Brian. Yeah. As you say, you know, it's a book about it's based about memory. Possible how our memories play trick on, tricks on us. And I use it as a vehicle to, um, I suppose, to talk about time my life and remember very clearly in the summer of 19, it's all set really in the summer of 1976, which was a red hot summer. People of my age remember it. And it was known as the Ladybird Summer because yeah, I can be on holiday that year and literally wading through puddles of ladybirds to get to the sea. It was bizarre, and I talked to my friend about it, and he said that before the ladybirds, there was a, um, a plague of aphid, apparently. I don't remember that. Well, I thought that would make sense, because ladybirds eat the aphid, don't they? So, yeah, that would make sense. So it's, it's set in 76, and it's about memory. And the story actually came from a couple of bizarre things. I mean, I mentioned earlier on that I'm a great fan of Ray Bradbury. And Ray Bradbury writes quite a lot about circuses and travelling... Fairs and the people who live on the margins 
Yeah, all you know the the giants, the you know the fortune tellers, the three legged person, the fish with a sheep's head. Yeah, he writes quite. I always like that. Yeah, you know, idea of the outsiders and just live on the periphery. And the circuses seem to yeah you know, the place that where you find them. But I remember you find them also yeah you know, in the trap in the car the carnivals that move around and at seaside you know, people who worked at those on those dodgems and the big dippers and the ghost houses they were a transient population that came in and went out and, they were, and that, so I, I kind of got that interesting feel about the outsider and I just made them a little bit more weird I think to help tell the story and so it's set in seventy six and it's Again, it's a kind. Of, it's about. It's, it's about memory, and the main story is about memory. It's about the, the narrator coming to terms with things that happened in the life, about a, tra- a tragedy and trauma in his youth when his sister was murdered, and uh, how that's haunted him all his life. And part of the story is him sorting it out, and it all comes together through the story as it's as, it, as it's told. So yeah, it's about that. I use it. I want to just write a good, rattling good tale. And there's my brother, not my brother. I'm just there's my son Daniel actually, who was talking about Stephen King. He's why do all Stephen King stories start with it was a summer never to be forgotten? You know, this idea of people hanging on homemade swings over green water with mayflies buzzing across them. And I thought, yeah. That's a great way to start a story, isn't it? And that image got into me of the perfect summer of the youth. And I thought, you know, I, set, I, I gave my character, I uh, made him 18 years old and he was setting out for the first time in a really hot summer to try and find his way in the world and how he, he gets involved in things that are, he gets involved in the adult world, but he's still only a child. And it's how things go right and go wrong for him. It reminded me a bit, actually, of, of the go-between. Uh, which is also yeah. Peter Hartley, which is also set in a record uh, hot summer, I think back in 1901. But it's a similar sort of theme of a child who's called on to be um, older than they really are and actually buckles under that weight for the rest of their lives. But tell, just if you would, just give us a flavour of the book by reading the first paragraph or so, Brian, if you've got it. Okay, right. well, I will read, the, I'll just go right to the start of it. Um, and then... And maybe I'll explain why it starts like this. It's told, it's the story told in the first person. It's narrator who's looking back on his life as he's making a journey. So this is the opening of um, Lady Bird's Summer. Um, the nightmare that became the rest of my life began years ago beneath a snowfall on a bright winter's night. Now, years later, I hope that it will be beneath the rain on this damp, dark day I'll finally wake up, step into the light, and shake all those terrors away. I finally set the ghost to rest. Well, believe what you will. I only mention this because this story may sound like a ghost story, but it mo- most likely isn't. It's all a matter of perspective. Whether or not you see events as a river or part of a jigsaw, it could be that over the years I've forgotten some of the details, or maybe somehow I've mixed them up in my head, so maybe they didn't happen in the order that I can recall them. Or, Christ, most worrying of all, maybe I just made the entire thing up to suit the narrative that I've already convinced myself of. But why would I invent a murder? I suppose that's why, after all those years, I'm making this trip. Well, that, 
in the letter. Hopefully, in making this journey, I'll finally find out what happened. So, Morecambe, here I come. I've not been back since I was spirited away. I'll now, I just need to go one last time to remember and to see if I can magically understand any of it. I've been told that seeing can unlock memories, as can certain smells. Now, this may be true. For example, when I smell lavender, I'm whipped back to my 10th birthday and the scent of my grandmother. Freshly cut grass. Well, that's a smell that always reminds me of football matches, green-stained shorts and blood-stained knees. And rose-scented soap is always, always Claire. Claire, now there is a ghost. It may be that the tangs and the view of the coast would unlock a flood of memories that will pour through me and finally, finally, I'll have all of the answers. That's the beginning. Great. Thanks so much, Brian. That's from the opening of, of Lady Bird's Summer. We've been hearing about two novels. Brian, how, how do we, by Brian Williams, um, who's thank you so much for talking to us today, how do we get hold of these novels? Uh, when will they be out? Uh, what do you know? What do I know? Well, what do I know? Lady Bird's Summer, I guess, no, is due to come out sometime next year. Probably, um, if you've got any sense, I'm guessing the idea of the marketing team are going to try and bring it out the summer. So it'll get into its, I suppose, its finished shape. What I can gather will be in about March, and then it gets banged off for reviewers and bits and bobs. And then it comes out in, it'll come out for summer. Initially, I think it's been released in the north, because it's set in the north, set around Morecambe and Stockport, Manchester way. And then we can see how it goes from there. So, and it, It'll be online and all these places you buy your books, I guess. Um, so that's, that's, that's the first novel published. And then the Featherbed Moss one, the Who Killed John Cropper, it's just sitting on my laptop at the moment, so you can't get it unless you come and rob me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I am going to get myself in gear and do something with that, really. I mean, it's finished. I don't, I don't know what I'm waiting for. Maybe you're thinking, if the world doesn't need one extra book, maybe it doesn't need two extra books, I don't know. But I, I will do something with that. I mean, maybe I should make it available as a link on your radio station so that people can read it and comment. Is that a weird thing to do? I wonder. I think we could consider anything, Tony. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And do, well, maybe that might be interesting, but to get here, yeah, I, well, I might do that. Then more people to read it. That might make me think about what to do with it. And maybe I'll write back and say it's terrible. And I think that's it. Just delete it. I'll delete it. <laughs> if you are a major yeah, so publisher you, listening to this, pardon? If you are a major publisher, I'm just putting this out to our audience. Oh, yeah. Our audience. Uh, yeah, yes. get in touch with us. But, uh, Tony, any more questions or anything to say? Thanks so much for joining us today, uh, Tony, as well as Brian. Anything? Yeah, Brad. Well, I think having just to find out is there anything you're working on now at the moment, having, having these two books behind you? Actually, yeah. Um, in the brain of Brian Williams that we might know. Well, I've always got, I've always got, you know, bizarrely, um, yeah. I'll never finish all the things I want to write, but loads of stories in my head floating around. And I'm, I'm working on two at the moment, and I sort of sw I just switch between both of them. And it's funny, because I, I started one, I thought a good place to start books. Funerals are great places to start books, aren't they? You know, because the people get into funerals, what's going on at funerals, they want to know. Another good place is jail. Why is that person in jail? 
So I started writing a story and it's based on, you know, started in jail. And that it suddenly split into two stories. And one became a, a jail set in almost like a mythical pre-medieval time. One became a jail set in modern times. So there's, I'm writing two stories. One about, um, as I say, it's about something going on in a long time ago in history. It's a bit of a, a bit of a myth, sort of quite a fabulistic story. And then the other story is actually based on a true story, and it is a mad, it's a mad true story. My family, I say, we're from, from Ireland, and um, one branch of my family live on an island off the coast of Ireland, and it's hard to get to it's way, way, way. And years and years ago, there was a big fight to try and get a bridge built to the island that made people's lives easier. And the council eventually built a really pokey bridge. It didn't make, didn't really do what they wanted it to. So then someone decided, well, maybe we need a ferry then. And then, I don't know how these people did this. I spoke to them, but they somehow went to Holland, found a ferry that had been, only a small ferry, like a car ferry, amongst the 10 cars that had been decommissioned in a scrapyard, tinkered it up, strapped the top of a container lorry to it, and then sailed it back illegally. <laughs> they sailed it back and then, you know, evading the police and ghost guards are going to do what else, apparently. And then it was on the island. It was used as a ferry for years. And it was such a bizarre story. I thought, wow, that is the story in there somewhere. So that was the beginning of the story that, that, I'm, that I'm writing. So there's, there's two going on. So one's quite a light, humorous one, and one's a bit darker. It's quite nice to flip between the two. Well, Brian, we're going to have to leave it, but um, okay. you've chosen one final piece of music. Uh, yeah, tell us about it. Well, uh, <laughs> when, I told, when I told you, you said, that's a great song to go out on, didn't you? There were your words. <laughs> and I did say well, it's quite, they were quite apt words because, unfortunately, I picked up a rather strange medical condition and I've got this bizarre brain tumour and I had to go for some operations on it. And... You know, brains are dangerous places, aren't they? So I had, I had the joy of planning my funeral and I had to pick a song to go out on. And this was the obvious song to me because it's a really upbeat, dancey, cheerful song with a great message. And then maybe, you know, if they turn up loud enough, maybe I pop out of my box and I join in and I get another few years out of it. So the final song, my song to go out on, which I love, is um, Wonderful World, but it's the punk version by the Ramones is just another toe tapper. We'll wake the dead. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much, Brian. Thanks so much for joining us this evening. I'm okay, it's been a pleasure, time. Tony. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brian. And um, look at yourself and keep yourself safe. And anyone listening out there, buy the books when they come out and um, all stay healthy and keep going.
Love the control. Love the command. Love the space bar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. Come back the way you are.